Before we get into the episode with Doug, I've just got some housekeeping notes. As always, I want to thank our patrons, the backbone of what makes this podcast what it is. Your generosity means the world to me. Thank you so much. If anyone wants to support the show and get access to stickers, bloopers, bonus audio, and more, you can do so for as little as $3 a month at patreon.com slash outerrimreads. Just as a reminder, our new merch of Obi-Wan with his orange lightsaber is now up on our store. If you follow the link in the episode description, you can get some for yourself and save 20% off your order with the code YOUNGWAN20. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to our Search Your Readings live show over on Instagram last week. I had a blast discussing part two of the book with you all, and we'll have another live stream at the end of April to discuss the book's conclusion when season three wraps up. Now let's get into part three of Light of the Jedi. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 54 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, we will begin part three, the final stretch of Light of the Jedi, discussing chapters 36 through 38, and I'm joined by my friend Douglas Dubois. Doug, how is it going, man? How are you doing? I am great. For the listeners, as we're recording, uh, the Kenobi teaser trailer just dropped this morning, so I'm still just buzzing. Save. I think the chills that I had watching all throughout are still around. They're still existing, so I've got my fleece on, but not even that can stop it, because it was fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I could probably devote a whole episode to talking about the trailer alone, but isn't it a good time to just be a Star Wars fan right now? Oh, considering everything else that's still to come this year... How they're going to shoehorn it in, I have no idea. But uh, yeah, it is a great time to be a Star Wars fan. Obviously, you and I have both lived through uh, long periods where, where Star Wars went pretty quiet, especially with the caliber of what we saw this morning. It's a, it's a real buzz. It's a real buzz indeed. And I mean, you know, we've got like the Lego Star Wars video game dropping in less than a month now. So it's, you know, we've got the shows lined up. We've got a wholesome classic game lined up to drop so it's just a fun fun time to be a star wars fan i'm super excited for for the kenobi show man that's that's going to be absolutely incredible to see you in on screen again just as i say that it feels kind of surreal i remember watching the phantom menace and the prequels and all that and to finally see him back you know as as obi-wan it's uh it's going to be a real treat. I'm, I'm super excited. Yeah, and uh, like for me, being someone, I guess, that, that grew up with the original trilogy first, when the prequels came out, I thoroughly enjoyed them. But Ewan was a, a real standout in all three of those films for me. And Joel Edgerton obviously only had a very uh, small part, but, um, you know, seeing a lot of stuff that he's done since then, I'm really looking forward to seeing more from, from Uncle Owen. So it's going to be cool. Yeah, I uh, like your the the good shout out for Uncle Owen because uh, you know he is potentially overlooked. So I, I'm really excited to see you know in in only a few episodes, but I think they can really do a lot, and I have some some pretty high hopes. Such a grumpy character in a new hope that uh, <laughs> you know I, I'd like to see him given perhaps a little bit of reason for 
for why he's so uh, why he's so moody. That is true. I think I just when I said that I forgot that he was kind of this uh, you know grumpy old man. But it would be cool, and I and I probably could expect that we will see exactly like you said you know why or how he ends up kind of uh, in the mentality and mindset that he is when we see him again in a new hope so there's a lot of building to do a lot of foundation to set but it should be quite quite the ride but we've got a very interesting uh, ride today with these chapters uh, beginning part three of the book which is called the storm. So, you know, right off the bat, we know exactly what that could entail, what that means. And really, chapter 36, like it throws us right into it. So, you know, you've been on for a couple of episodes now this season. So there's no need to, uh, you know, we'll dispense with the pleasantries of background of the book and Star Wars. We can jump right into the chapters. I can give my summary for chapter 36. And then we can talk about what's happening at the Kerr Nebula. Let's go. The new elite drops out of hyperspace at the Kerr Nebula as Kasav and his Tempest get ready to confront the Republic and take the flight recorder. Although a fight is nearly upon them, Kasav is subdued and wary after his encounter with Markeon Roe. The Tempest runner sees bad omens around him and considers ordering his Tempest away to leave the Nihil and start fresh. However, just before he can give the order, Admiral Cronara's fleet arrives at the Nebula. The Admiral is wary to face off against the Nihil with his inexperienced forces, but is confident in their discipline and their Jedi accompaniment. He tries to contact the new elite, to no avail. Although Kasav's lieutenants mutiny against him after he tries to give the escape order, he is able to somewhat regain control. As his forces get boxed in, he gives the order to fight. Like I said, part three jumps off, you know, right into the foundations of this big fight. You know, Charles is really holding nothing back. We're at the climactic part of the book, and and he means it. These three chapters, there's a lot of action in them, uh, very action-packed, but still very entertaining, a lot to get through. What did you think about chapter 36 and kind of the opening stages to this confrontation from Kasav's POV? My first thought when I sort of looked at the ideas that are jumping off the page in this chapter is, is death. And of, of course, we get little bits of contrasting senses of duty and loyalty between, you know, the Republic and, and the Nile, but mostly death. Um, it's bookended with two beautiful bits of uh, of foreshadowing about the, the sort of the green hue from the nebula casting this you know bad shade, bad omen. It gets even more explicit after that. I think uh, I think you know where it's going just from this first paragraph. Exactly. I was you know reading his thoughts about kind of this the green hue that this nebula is casting kind of into the bridge uh, from the viewport. I was a little bit unsure, you know, whether Charles was was really doing this to us, you know, kind of all this imagery of, uh, we'll we'll get to a quote down the line, but just the bad omens that Kasav is getting from kind of the the tint that it's casting on the bridge on his crew, just kind of feeling death around him, and the chapter does end, like you say, with that parallel again. I guess even before we get a really striking quote from Kasav about what he is perceiving around him, I was struck by 
his entrance here, the new elite's entrance into the nebula. It's it's very starkly contrasted from the situation at Iriadu last time where he rolled up, you know, they were getting high, the, they had music blaring, you know, he was really feeling it. And here, this time around, the bridge is silent, there's no music playing, he doesn't feel like it. And you know, he just he has this very defeated vibe around him, which we can't blame him, but it's really showing here and kind of just we see that he's more or less a broken man. Yeah, like you say, it says the, the bridge was silent, no music. He didn't feel like it. It's completely different Kasav to, to what we saw when he arrived in in the Ariadu system. He's looking at his mutilated hand, he's I don't know what I say, he's feeling sorry for himself, he's feeling bitter and how he's presenting to his crew as well you sort of see that reflected in in their actions throughout the chapter he's no longer this imposing sort of figure to them in the same way that he was yeah for sure and we can really see that when wet bub you know the the bloodthirsty gungan he's growing impatient <laughs> can you just say bloodthirsty gungan again please <laughs> wet bub the bloodthirsty gungan <laughs> All right, I'm like, on board. Carry on. You're on board. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> we know Darth Jar Jar's origins. It's right here. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's growing impatient. They're waiting for the Republic to arrive. But Kasav, he's very irritated. He tells them, like, we're going to wait as long as I say. So we really get the sense that his whole attitude towards what they're doing seems to have shifted entirely where you know a few times in this chapter he's thinking quite bitterly like you said toward even the thought of Markeon Roe and we really get the feeling that he's not buying into the Nihil that he's seeing around him anymore especially after what happened with Markeon but it's it's really showing here but we we see that his heart is no longer in it and eventually, you know, the, the crew does respond, but I think it's just very striking to the reader where like, it just seems the whole thing from his vibe to his mentality to his heart for what he's doing, it's just not there. And, you know, I guess I'll, I'll read this quote here, which kind of sums up his, his mentality here, quote, Bub looked like a corpse, a moldy, three weeks dead corpse. Kasav glanced around the bridge at the rest of his crew. Everyone did. That blasted nebula. It just, it speaks a lot to where he is right now. I love how they keep just dipping back into that green hue, making everyone look like corpses. It smash you in the, in the face type of imagery, but I love it. It, it's, it fits the mood on the bridge. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder how he would do on Dagobah. There's a lot of green going on there, just kind of like greenish, sickly green, you know, swampy hues. I, I don't think he'd have a good time. I don't see Kassav as the kind of guy that could um, content himself on somewhere like Dagobah. <laughs> He's, he's talking about, you know, fleeing and starting somewhere fresh, and I'm guessing Dagobah might be the first planet that he crosses off the list. <laughs> he's all about his grand plans in this chapter, and I can't imagine anyone's grand plans uh, beginning on Dagobah. It doesn't seem to fit for him. I think one of the, you had mentioned kind of the loyalty, the contrasting loyalties between the Nihil and the Republic here. I kind of saw this 
set up to fail for Kasav when he thinks, I think a couple of times, when he's looking at his crew and his assembled fleet and thinking how loyal to him that they all are. And, you know, it's he's going to try to run away with them, kind of just start fresh with them and that they'll all buy into it because they, you know, they're his Tempest. And it's just... I don't know, reading that, I was like, all right, something's gotta give. It's it's obviously not gonna work, but it just it seemed very obvious here that he was going to be surprised that it's actually not quite what he thinks. I mean we've already sort of seen some defiance bubbling up on the on the bridge. Whip pub is, you know, subtly or, or not so subtly um giving him some signals, talking about holding his hands up his two perfectly fine hands like he was rubbing it in <laughs> uh, and then yeah this bit where he's sort of saying his crew are loyal to him they don't take orders from Panetio or Lorna D and definitely not Machion Ro. <laughs> starting to look a bit less like that's the case the narrator is like they do in fact take orders <laughs> from Machion <Ro." laughs> yeah they do in fact take orders from Machion Ro. and I, I do have to say Kassab has been drastically and severely unlikable in this book, very just a just a despicable being. But I do have to say, there's something that he was thinking here that I could really support. And he's, you know, he's thinking about kind of just starting fresh, leaving the Night Hill, kind of starting his own group. And he's thinking, quote, but none of this blasted storm business. He was sick of it, to which I just I totally, I totally agree. He's like, he, he's trying to think of ways to rename their structure. You know, he's thinking about, you know, maybe a structure around fire with, you know, flames and blazes and infernos. And then he lost me at, uh, and then Kasav at the top as a big, powerful star. And it was like, oh, okay, okay, all right, that was short-lived. Calm down. <laughs> You've gone from from Markion Rowe mutilating you and effectively casting you as the bitch amongst the uh, <laughs> amongst the the elite in the Nile. I'm just going to go off and be my own bright sun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's see how that goes for you. As we see, things do not go very well uh, because you know, kind of just before he is giving the order to his tempest to kind of leave the scene the republic do show up and it is a battle fleet so right there we we know that it's gonna go down this is it and we transition to admiral Cronara's pov he's on the bridge of the third horizon and he's thinking you know he, he's seeing kasav's tempest and he thinks, you know, it looks like they're about to face the full Nihil fleet. And I just, I shook my head. I was like, oh, oh, no. dude, if, if only you knew this is a third of it. <laughs> the odds would not be in their favor. And as things progress, I do have to wonder how things would play out if the Republic fleet came up against the full might of the Nihil. Like, I don't think they're small time marauders anymore. It was a good little sort of state of the galaxy exposition that initial part when he's sort of going on about the fact that it's the battle will be the likes of which you know a ranking military commander in the republic hadn't seen in decades it's interesting to sort of know that the people that are coming out in response in force more than likely haven't really faced anything on a scale like this let alone most definitely haven't faced anything like the nile who are a completely different force to reckon with. It's a good point, and you're exactly right. You know, we do have a very stark contrast here with the Nihil. You know, they seek out fights for the for the fun of it, for the plunder of it, and like you said, the galaxy 
from the Republic's perspective, has been at peace for a while. It's kind of like this golden age until, you know, everything hit the fan at Hetzal. But you're right, because, you know, he and, and Admiral Cronara does feel some worry here where a battle of this scale could be a problem for kind of the inexperienced forces here. And I have to wonder, you know, there's been so much peace, you know, most of them have only really fought in skirmishes. It's kind of pointing out, I don't know if it's a problem, but definitely some kind of cost of peacetime. Not to say that, you know, war or fighting is a good thing at all, but we see here it could be a little bit of a disadvantage to the Republic forces where, you know, we don't know if they're really cut out or ready for this kind of scale of a fight. Yeah, and in the prequels we saw something similar where the Republic didn't have a a standing fleet and when they eventually sort of gave over emergency powers to create such a thing, it was done in such a hasty way that obviously, you know, it was able to be undermined from the top. Whereas um, there's a little sort of hint here about the Ariadu fleet that's going to arrive and um, you, you know that those people, they're going to be deeply martially trained, they're going to be scary, and they keep sort of nodding to it throughout this chapter. It's sort of almost like a horror element in the story about yeah. this this fleet that's going to turn up. <laughs> exactly. I do love the vibe that is painted around them, and, and we'll get to that. I, I do have to wonder, maybe I'll put you on the spot, if you were Chancellor of the Republic... You know, if Chancellor So stepped down and Douglas Dubois was elected, would you create a standing army for the Republic? You know, we're seeing here that maybe they're not at all ready for this kind of threat. Would a standing army be a good idea? You know, it seems like they don't learn from their, I don't know if this is will prove to be a mistake, but we do see exactly like you pointed out how it is still a problem in the prequel time. And we see how the army that they eventually have costs them everything. Should the Republic have a standing army? I have to wonder. It's a valid question. I guess it's a very real world question. You know, you look at the contrasting defense budgets of, of some of the world's superpowers compared to those who kind of just want to go about their life and trust that next-door neighbors aren't going to come rolling in. I think there is a certain responsibility, I guess, to be able to protect your member nations, and they talk here about how their forces are generally made up of coalition treaties and and whatnot, which I suppose is probably how it should work, but those coalitions need to remain healthy, I suppose is probably your first point, and then having some sort of you know federal or, or galactic force probably you would think in some way is is necessary the members of of the republic who aren't well equipped to defend themselves they should be able to rely on some sort of central force to come from this group that they've joined up with i would say it's all about balance again star wars balance really (laughs) could it be a thing uh (laughs) i thought uh just when when you were saying that there i thought of how this was kind of, this problem was mentioned in the beginning stages of the book. I think when one of the, uh, I think the prime minister or the minister of Hetzal, uh, one of his advisors pointed out to him rather pointedly, you know, this is what happens when we don't invest enough in defending ourselves from whatever, you know, problems might arise. You know, our systems, our equipment, our personnel weren't ready for any of this, which, you know, to be fair, there's no way that anyone could be ready for exactly what for, happened. For, yeah, <laughs> the great hyperspace disaster. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's no way to be ready for that. But it seems like it's 
becoming some kind of through line or at least just a parallel here or just the similar idea here that's playing out again where I wonder if, you know, because I don't think this will be the, the end of these kind of fights and conflicts. I do wonder if the Republic will take a look at itself and ask the same question that Hetzal did uh, at the start of the book. Yeah, well, and a lot of the time, I guess, again, in, in sort of the real world, uh, in military is, is there as a resource to use in times of disaster, not necessarily just wartime. So, you know, I guess member nations such as Hetzal perhaps should be expecting a certain amount of investment into into defence from each other so that they can come to each other's aid as well as having a, a central force to um, to bolster that. So yeah, it's definitely something that's that sort of lays pretty heavy over the whole story. Yeah, and it definitely continues on uh, to the you know into the next couple of hundred of years or however long it takes for. Uh, for the Phantom Menace to, uh, for that timeline to start. But Admiral Cronara, you know, he's kind of considering his forces here, and he does think to the Ataraxia, which has joined them, like well, we read in a previous chapter, that is one of the Jedi's uh, big star cruisers. And, you know, he's thinking of Joramali, the commander uh, aboard for the Jedi contingent, and how she had a strong military mind and was to lead the Jedi contingent on, on the Starlight Beacon. And I, I, I wondered here what it might say that, and, and maybe this maybe the answer we've already touched on, uh, but you know what it might say when the Jedi are kind of putting one of their best military minds specifically in charge of their Starlight Beacon contingent. You know, I... I see the need for security when you move out into the outer rim, but I don't know. It, it, is there some kind of like aggressive vibes there when like they they make sure that they have a strong military mind leading their force out into the outer rim, or maybe maybe it's just me overreacting? But it it felt interesting that the the Jedi to lead their force or their group aboard the Starlight Beacon, this initiative that will kind of revolutionize the Republic moving into the Outer Rim, had specifically a very strong military mind. What do you think about that? It's a good point. Uh, obviously, there are sort of many different aspects to um, what they're trying to project with, with Starlight Beacon and what they're trying to provide. But I, I would have to imagine that stationing it in that part of space, uh, admittedly, slightly more lawless part of the galaxy, the ability to provide some protection or, or defense would have to be an aspect of it that, you know, would be either attractive to some of the systems perhaps that feel threatened or could come across on the other side of the coin as aggressive to those who feel quite comfortable in, in themselves and, and their ability to defend themselves and see it more as encroaching on their part of space and, and trying to set boundaries or dictate how things uh, should be done out in the outer room. Yeah, it's a very interesting quandary uh, at their hands here. And I guess so far we haven't really seen how that will play out with the Republic expansion, you know, colonizing the outer rim. We haven't seen the specifics of what that means for the people and the, the beings that they do or will encounter so yeah, i guess we'll we'll have a pin in that to see how the response is to them but here i guess you know encountering the nihil we do see that there are quite severe threats out there 
that create a threat just for the chaos of it. So it seems in this way, from what we see in these chapters, that it could be quite warranted then, especially if the Nihil do kind of increase their leverage as this opposing force to the Republic. So I guess we'll have to wait and see how everything plays out from here, which uh, it's quite, quite interesting. And you can only imagine the response from the various systems out in the outer rim would be varied. They're not a homogenous group of beings. You know, each system itself isn't a homogenous group of beings. So there will be some resistance. There will be some who welcome it. There'll be some that are frightened of the threat of the Nile. And there'll possibly be others who agree with, you know, their their pushback on this whole uh, we are the Republic business. That's very true. You know, there, there are sympathizers to the Nihil and even people within the Republic, if we think back to one of the earlier chapters, who wanted the Republic to fail at Hetzal, who wanted to see them fail. So there there are those on, on either side. It'd be very interesting to see how it develops and plays out from here. We're back to Kasav. He does avoid answering the call from Admiral Kanara, who's trying to communicate with him, and he's trying to give the order for them to head to the nearest exit point in the system so they can get out of there, because we, as we remember, Markion did not provide them with a path, so they actually have to go to a certain point in the nebula to get into a hyperspace lane and leave. And... You know, again, we see that under normal circumstances, he might be all about this fight, but now he's not really ready to die for Markion's Nihil. And we get this fascinating moment here where Graven speaks up, you know, he's trying to question Kasav's decision here. And I literally wrote in my margin, uh, I wonder if they'll turn on him. And then needless to say, the next page, I just flip the page and you know, the lieutenants tell Kasav, you know, Markian told him about their orders and they're supposed to kill him if he doesn't follow through, you know, blasters get drawn. And we see that Markion has pretty much got Kasav's Tempest under lock, which what a turn of events here. There there are a few turns of events in this chapter, in these chapters, but this one was pretty massive. At the start of the, uh, I guess, our introduction to the Nile hierarchy, you're sort of given to believe that the eye brings these paths to the table and uh, has a sway vote if the Three Tempest runners and the eye are, are sort of split on something, then he has the sway vote. But no direct sort of control over the Tempests themselves. Those are the three Tempest runners. But um, he's just completely undermined Kasav here. He's emasculated him. He's undermined him with direct orders. And you feel like Kasav's days are numbered. He's going to have to do something extremely spectacular here in order to win back the loyalty of, of his own Tempest, let alone the others. For sure. I mean, you know, we had heard Markion say to them that, you know, you're humiliated to your Tempest. You know, we didn't really know if he was just saying that to get to Kasav and Lorna D, but here we see that, it, you know, it's it's pretty true. I, I can only imagine that, you know, they've kind of been watching him, you know, especially hearing these orders from Markion, kind of paying more attention to the body language of Kasav, seeing, you know, his mood about things. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back where he tries to you know, turn tail and, and run, and they are just not having it. But you had mentioned that it seems like Kasav's days are numbered. 
and we can only think that is more so the case when another fleet drops in from hyperspace exactly in the transfer point that they're trying to get to. So they are boxed in, but we find out these are the Iriaduins. And uh, I've just got a quote here when Kasav, you know, he had done his homework on them after his blunder. And I'll just read here what he thinks and has learned about the Iriaduins, and I'll open the floor to you. Quote, Iriadu was one of those warrior planets, a whole culture steeped in ideals of revenge and justice and blood and honor, easily slighted, always having duels and poisoning each other and whatever. But for the moment, it seemed like they had stopped squabbling long enough to come together to hunt him. (laughs) (laughs) I love how uh, the the bridge blaming him for what happened to Iriadu when they were all chopped off their teats. They were cranking uh, wreck punk music. Uh, I guess the people involved in in, um, preventing that last emergence, all of them failed in some way. And yet, you know, they're sitting back and going, oh, yeah, we'll mark you on, uh, you know, so we had to keep an eye on you after what you did at Eriadu. And (laughs) he's like, what, what I did at Eriadu? Traitorous (laughs) lizards or something in his head. They've turned on him. As far as they're concerned, this threat from the uh, the fleet from Eriadu is, is all focused on him. And probably to a degree it is. They just, they turn their backs on each other at the drop of a hat. It's, it's great to read. Yeah, it really, it is, you know, as as much as kind of Kasav is describing the Iriaduans as being, you know, knives out on each other, you know, all this poisoning yeah, and infighting yeah. and all that. <laughs> it's kind of the, it's kind of like the Nihil. It's, you know, just like kind of looking in the mirror a little bit. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, but I, I love the way they're portrayed in this uh the Tarkin novel is is still canon, I believe. Yes. Yes, still canon. A, yeah, and it, it is really sort of in keeping with what we sort of learn about their culture in in that book as well. Yeah, I can only imagine that uh, that Charles Soule has read that book because he he portrays them perfectly in this. You know, they do show up, and the uh, those around him don't seem to realize how big of a problem that could be. Kasav has done his research; he knows that it uh, could very well spell the end for them. But you know, he is resigned here. You know, he realizes that they can't escape and he gives the order to fight and, you know, they're all into it. He, he cranks up the uh, wreck punk again. He yeah, tries the to... Punk's back. He, yeah, exactly. He, he turns on turns on the music. He tries to, you know, rile them up and get them pumped, you know, for the Nihil, for the storm. And there's this uh, the ending quote that you had mentioned earlier where Kasav is looking at his crew, you know, at each of their faces, quote... In the green light of the Kerr Nebula, still pouring through the bridge viewports, they all looked like corpses, three days dead. For the Nihil, Kasav thought, for the storm. What a chilling end. Uh, that's really all that I could think, just what a chilling end. We see the, the fulfillment of the foreshadowing at the start of the chapter, where they look like corpses to him there, and here we have that same thought. It was really fantastically written and put together by Charles Soule. Uh, I was just in awe here. You're dead. You're all dead, I'm afraid. <laughs> you just don't quite know it yet. Yeah, no, I loved that. I, I highlighted that last little paragraph too. I think that the chapter was bookended perfectly with uh, with these two bits of foreshadowing of this sickly green hue and 
three-day dead corpses and, and whatnot. It's all pretty smack you in the face imagery, but, uh, but I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. I do have to wonder, you know, as things continue to play out, if it will come to fruition, because as we'll learn in chapter 38, you know, the some tides turn. But before then, we do take a little pit stop back to Elfrona with Loden and Indira with their rescue attempt for the rest of the Blythe family. So I'll give my chapter summary for chapter 37, and then we'll talk about that one. Now above Elfrona, Loden Greatstorm accelerates toward the damaged Nihil ship, determined to save the remaining Blythe family members. Although he resolves to try and keep killing to a minimum, he firmly accepts the Nihil aboard will face justice for their abhorrent actions. Loden contacts Bell, who confirms he saved B, and Loden promises to request for Bell to be promoted to the rank of Jedi Knight when this is all over. He tells Bell to take B to safety, and the two end the communication. Loden and Indira briefly plan how to save the Blythes, and Loden pulls off a brilliant maneuver to slow the Nihil ship and allow Indira to board it and begin their rescue attempt. Suddenly, however, a fleet arrives out of hyperspace, surrounding the Nihil ship and the two Jedi vectors. Lorna D and her Tempest had come to finish the mission. I have to say, when this chapter started, when I saw where we were, you know, seeing how last chapter, you know, Kasav got where he needed to be, where Markion had ordered him to be initially like just right off the bat i was like i hope i hope 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 that Loden will not run into lorna d's fleet and needless to say that's exactly how it ends what did you think about chapter 37 it was shorter but uh still we do have that cliffhanger of an ending what were your thoughts my first thoughts are you hope hope hoped that something wouldn't go wrong in this book good 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 for you good for you but um yeah you know there's not an awful lot to this chapter obviously a nice moment for bell uh recognition from from loden and then yeah i guess just the the setup for things going south like they always do in this book and especially with lorna turning up with her whole tempest and we've just seen in the previous chapter that you know this republic fleet is looking at an entire tempest as absolutely a threat so you know a couple of vectors <laughs> if there's an entire tempest on them all of a sudden should should be thinking probably this is more of a threat than you know what the republic fleet are dealing with so yeah we're just we're in for we're in for more sort of backs to the wall stuff for the jedi i guess this group from alfrona have just they've been at it now for chapter after chapter after chapter and and uh, they're still twisting the tail for them. Yeah, I mean, I can think of that one time when they were at the outpost having, you know, the nine eggs stew. Like that oh. seemed to be the only moment of peace for them. And take then it's just all been. <laughs> <laughs> take us, take us back. Take me there too. I, I really want to try that stew. But yeah, it... can we all just go back to the outpost and enjoy the stew? I have to respect load in here uh you know i never like didn't respect him but my i guess my respect for him increased when he's vowing to himself as he's accelerating towards the night hill ship that he is going to try to save every life on the ship even though you know the they'll obviously prioritize the innocent blythe family but he's still even ready to make sure they save the night hill too although 
thinking that, you know, he's found out that sometimes, quote, people chose their own ends, and there was nothing he or even the Force seemed to be able to do about it. But still, like, it, it said a lot about him as a Jedi, him as a character, when after all this, everything he's seen, just the despicable acts that they've literally perpetrated in front of him, you know, throwing Erica out, you know, ready to kill her and them as they try to save her, you know, throwing a child out of an airlock, plummeting to the planet, you know, after all of that, he's still ready to save them if he's able to. That just spoke a lot to to the character of Loden Greatstorm. I loved that little moment there. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that too. And I, I think also when he uh, eventually uses the mind touch, you also see that little, I guess, sort of moral discussion in his own head about about when's right to use it and when's not. But um, you know, these despicable Nile have uh, have made those decisions for themselves, and he, he sort of makes that clear. Again, he's certain about what he needs to do. I love his maneuver that he pulls off. And, uh, you know, I think it even says, like, Indira gasped, or he heard Indira gasp or something. And despite himself, he found himself smiling. It's like, he knows he's good. (laughs) (laughs) He knows. He knows he's living up to his name. He is, in fact, uh, He is the great storm. (laughs) (laughs) But we do get this wholesome moment from him and Bell when he does contact Bell he finds out that he succeeded to save B and you know he's saying that he's going to kind of put in the request for Bell to be promoted to Jedi Knight and I want to feel good about this I really do I really do but there's a lot of emphasis here being put on you know Loden looking forward to celebrating with Bell you know that he's not his master anymore that Bell is a knight and how Bell wants him to be there when the council declares it I don't think anyone can read this and not feel nervous it just it feels like the same kind of situation that we've had earlier in the book you know where in our previous episode where uh, Tayami and Mikkel are kind of sharing just banter about, oh, you know, their plans for the future, you know, hunting down Kasav, and, you know, we've seen Avar and Elzar talk about, you know, or at least think about it, you know, a happy retirement, you know, we haven't seen anything happen to them yet, but it felt like the same kind of cheery talk about the future that that has got people killed before, and I couldn't read this and not think this is pretty much Bell's goodbye to Loden, and I don't like it at all. I know exactly what you mean. They do seem to enjoy setting up these moments of comradeship or or whatever it may be just before someone gets taken out uh, and yeah, i mean firstly i r- really like this moment because you know how much it means to bell to have his uh, his master or you know his mentor feel that he's ready that you know he's done something to the equivalent or, or beyond of anything they could throw at him in the trials and and knowing how great Loden is, it must be awesome for Bell to sort of uh, have that recognition from his master. And then, yeah, like you say, it does seem like a big setup, but um, that's this book for you. Yeah, you'd rightfully called me out for uh, hoping that things would <laughs> be okay. And <laughs> and here I, I do have to, I mean, it's been my prediction, I guess, since the start, is that Loden would not make it out of this book, or at least out of the High Republic, but... I think that I need to brace myself for something to happen here. Uh, I I don't think that he's going to be able to see or be there for Bell's promotion, but I'm still, you know, I'm still going to naively hope that maybe there's a possibility, but it doesn't look very likely with the end of the chapter, but 
before then, even, we do get this maneuver that you had mentioned where, you know, he's smiling to himself as he does it, you know, Indira gasps, and we know how good of a pilot she is from, you know, her flying two vectors at once with the force, uh, where just, I'm just going to describe it, yeah, you know, they're trying to slow the Nihil ship so that Indira can go jump on board and save one, and then Loden can uh, save the other after she's done. And, you know, he pulls off this move where he flies up and over the Nihil ship and he's spinning, I think, like a drill to avoid their shots. And he ends up with his vector's nose facing that of the Nihil ship. And now he's flying backwards. I just th- that is so just undeniably, objectively cool. I love that maneuver the the load in maneuver, we could call it here. It was fantastic to read. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they keep doing this with him, don't they? Showing these amazing sort of feats of ability. And the characters around him are, are, are always in awe to some degree or another. Yeah, and this was so cool. Again, I think a lot of this parallels to um, to what we discussed uh, a couple of episodes ago, but it's something you just want to see on screen. The descriptions of these things are so cool. And I really want to see it brought to life. That could be a hope that might not be, or maybe it is just as naive as my hopes for uh, things working out okay in this book. You can build a rebellion uh, on hope. Surely you can give us a couple of these (laughs) things we hope for. Resistances are built on hope too. You know, it's it's, you know we can we can dare to hope. We can dare to hope. It's a central theme of Star Wars. Go on and hope all you want. Or maybe maybe a central theme of. Star Wars or the Skywalker saga, but doesn't seem like it could be a central theme <laughs> of the High Republic. <laughs> I tell you what, this book could do with just adjusting the hope meter up the smidgen. <laughs> just a little bit. Just give us the odd carrot. Then, you know, I'll walk through another mile and a half of <laughs> of tears just for that next carrot of hope. Yeah, just enough to keep us going each time. It hurts, but it, I guess it's working, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, like you say, Loden used the uh, the mind touch to, you know, because he's literally staring at the pilot of the Nihil ship who's looking in awe at him right now, like understandably so, like exactly right. And he George, uses George the mind moment. touch. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, I, you know, this is the one time where I can relate to the Nihil where it's like, yeah, yeah, my jaw would be on the floor too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he gets her to slow the ship and open their airlock, and so Indira pulls up and she jumps in. thought it was a cool note that the Jedi are apparently trained to withstand space for a short time, which is, you know, pretty neat. You know, we can see maybe, uh, I mean, I don't know if Leia was specifically trained in that way, but I thought it was a well, some kind of connection there it's that the they're able to withstand. Yeah. yeah, and, uh, you know, just as he is thinking over his next moves, uh, a ton of ships appear, and Lorna D has arrived, and uh, she notices that you know the the vector at the nose of the ship, so we know as Loden, you know, has pulled off either to escape, to attack. Who knows? I don't know because honestly, I don't know how this is going to end, or at least how they're going to get out of this alive. You know, I've really got a bad feeling for Loden. I've got a bad feeling about this, but at the same time. I don't know what the odds are that Lorna kills two Jedi or three Jedi in this book alone. I don't know, but I'm scared either way. Well, I mean, we've seen she's formidable, and we've seen obviously that you know her uh, that an entire Nile Tempest is a serious force to reckon with. So I mean, it's hard to see how 
you know, something isn't going to go terribly wrong on the back of this. I'm glad I don't have to review the next uh, the next chapter if I'm if I'm sort of reading this um, in the moment because I'm scared for them. It's just ramped up more than a notch or two, and you know, obviously, I, and I like Indira, I like Loden, I like that whole sort of group from Afrona, and I just want them all to make it back to the outpost for Stu. That's all. That's all I want. It's not much to ask. And then Charles is like, uh, "Bet it might be just too much to ask for." <laughs> <Yeah>. Sorry, <laughs> that was too much. I mean, I can see maybe this being like we've seen Loden pull off all of these great maneuvers, these great tricks, and he's got a vastly, you know, just a lot of tools in his belt. You know that he's been able to use and and help get them out of sticky situations or help you know solve these problems that they've come against but i can definitely see this being a moment where you know no matter what kind of trick he might have up his sleeve there are just some things that cannot be overcome and i just uh, yeah i guess i should prepare because i, I do honestly don't know how he or indira are gonna get out of this alive uh i'm i'm scared and that's probably exactly what charles wants but uh yeah i just don't see any kind of positive outlook here if you want anyone in your corner in this situation i suppose it is loading i mean this this true like if there would be anyone to find a way to get them out of this it could be him but uh you know there's a fleet surrounding them i honestly don't i don't know but i guess even more questions are raised in the next chapter with the turns of events that happen there with this battle underway at the Kerr nebula I can give my summary for chapter 38 and we can talk about this fight that is now waging between the Nihil and the Republic. The battle at the Kerr Nebula begins as the Republic face off against Kassav's Tempest, with the Iriaduan fleet approaching steadily. Although the Nihil had the numerical advantage, the discipline of the Republic's forces, along with their big guns, were slowly but surely tearing into Kassav's contingent. The Tempest Runner has a sudden realization, though, and orders his fleet to fight on their terms, and show the Republic who they really are. The tide of the battle begins to turn in the Nihil's favor, as their tactics catch the Republic by surprise. Admiral Cronara realizes this, and asks Joramali and her Jedi contingent for aid. The Jedi's Vector Squadron flies out in formation, ready to take on the Nihil. Meanwhile, Markeon Ro finally makes contact with Kassav, broadcasting a riveting message to the entire Tempest. He provides them with battle paths, which drastically and instantly turn the tide of the fight. Yeah, I mean, just like the previous, or I guess chapter 36, but kind of ramped up, this is an action-packed, or just a very packed chapter. This one specifically with action, because we you know, we have a, a fight, you know, a, a massive space battle here between these two forces. What did you think about chapter 38 and really, you know, one of these culminations of a really uh, of, of a bunch of tension in the book, you know, really kind of the moment that we've been waiting for, or at least one of these moments that we've been waiting for, where now the, the Nihil and the Republic are kind of duking it out. What did you think? Like we were talking about before with um, sort of discussing the, the readiness of the Republic uh, forces for, for this kind of conflict for the scale of conflict i guess but um they seem to be handling that okay you know slowly but steadily chewing through them and and doing so 
with disciplined tactics. And then, you know, Kassav gives the order to, to fight dirty. And already that's that's starting to sort of throw a spanner in the works. And they're not prepared, not necessarily for the scale of conflict, but for the nature of this enemy. And then that just ramps up again <laughs> at the end of the chapter once they receive these paths and and uh, we see just the chaos and nihilism at its worst. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a really great point that, you know, no matter how much discipline and training you know, th- that anyone has, like, there's no way to be ready for the kind of tricks and tools and just the stunts that the Nihil end up throwing at the Republic here. Let's say, you know, like uh, one of those clone memes from like Battlefront, like this is just like the simulations. Like there is no <laughs> simulation that exists at all for this kind of fight. And and it really shows, it really ends up showing. But I did have a question because, you know, Kasav is simultaneously watching this Iriaduan fleet getting closer and closer. And then also watching the kind of the one-on-one dogfights that his Tempest is kind of engaged with right now, it's not really working here. And he does give the order, like you said, to for them to fight dirty. And it works, you know, as we see, or as we will see. But I was thinking, why wouldn't they have really fought dirty to begin with? Like, I guess for, you know, we kind of get an answer that they're out there for personal glory, you know, trying to impress their higher-ups to, you know, get promoted eventually. But it kind of felt odd to me that he had to, or that they had to be told to fight dirty. I kind of would have thought that that would just be in their natural repertoire. I don't know if that also jumped to you, but I was kind of like, huh, like, you know, they had to be commanded to fight dirty like i thought they just they would but uh, apparently not yeah well I, I suppose it's um it's a bit like telling a dog hey you should get happy about going for this walk they just naturally are right so you, you would think they would fight. I, I imagine they probably do fight dirty to some degree by nature but perhaps many of them aren't smart enough to think of some of the the tactics that they come up with when, when they're told specifically make it dirtier uh, I don't, I don't know, but yeah, it, it's a good point. They're obviously not fighting in sort of disciplined formations and things like that, like you would expect from from the Republic, and they're very much individualistic and and out for their own glory. But yeah, as far as the cranking up of the levels of dirt they're willing to fling, yeah, it's a, it's it's interesting. It really is quite interesting, you know, what happens when he does give this order. And I'm just going to kind of go through a few examples here and just, you know, open the floor where, you know, in one moment we see a Nihil freighter kind of let loose this toxic reactor byproduct and they ignite it and it causes like a chain reaction of Republic ships exploding like those who got caught in it. Another fighter literally lands on top of a bigger Republic craft and does like a high intensity burn literally into the bridge's viewport, which is just holy shit. Like uh, there is a graphic. it's so graphic and it's like uh i think that i guess Cronara ends up calling them despicable or at least thinking that they're despicable for this next stunt that they pull where it looked like one of their corvettes had been taken down and we see escape pods kind of jettison out which the republic and their long beams they salvage and take them back to one of their cruisers which then promptly explodes when the escape pods were actually filled with explosives and the corvette was just fine it's just i can see this playing out so vividly and it's it's 
horrifying and despicable stuff, but also just wow. Like it's I was not expecting anything like this, which might be the point there. I, I don't know. It was just it was quite horrifying to read, but also just you gotta give it to him. It's totally unexpected. And I love how Katsev's just sitting back and was chuckling to himself as, you know, the next despicable act is is performed on the battlefield. The ones with the escape pods, uh, which exploded once they were on board, he's, he's like, hit and said to himself, we are all the Republic. It's like classic, oh. classic villain using the, the hero's sense of honor and their own catchphrase against them in, in one of those sort of gotcha moments. Again, perfect for the screen. 100%. Like, But in some ways, I almost like don't know if I'm ready to see that on screen, especially like the high intensity burn right into the viewport. That was just, that's rough. That is very rough uh, i mean <laughs> but as the reader you can you can totally sort of feel Cronara's peer view he's disgusted and you're disgusted by the things the nile will do on this large scale and and obviously the smaller scale horrific things that we've seen them do today yeah it's uh there seems to be nothing that they won't try to win this now that they're kind of fully unleashed or maybe not fully yet but uh we'll We'll get there. Admiral Cronara, like you said, he's kind of taking this in. He's watching this horror show unfold, and he's calling for the Jedi to uh, to help them out. And Jorah Mali tells Avar, who is on the Third Horizon, you know, ready to use that same kind of battle meditation-esque uh, ability of hers to link them all in this fight. And but we do see kind of as Jorah is approaching her vector we see Elzar Mon, we see his friends still and Geos and Nib Asek and Buri and Mikael Supmani you know and among other Jedi but you know we see the squad kind of getting ready to roll out so you gotta you know that was kind of a feel good like let's let's go kind of moment and we're seeing some some Jedi come into the battle who have experience with the Nile too which is good because like Renara was saying earlier these tactics don't show up in in the academy training material and he's not without ideas of his own but it's good to see some people coming into the action that have had some experience now with the Nile. Yeah, for sure. I'd kind of forgotten about that bit where it's like, yeah, this could be quite a pivotal moment for the Republic here where we can definitely see those Jedi who have come up against the Nihil in some way, shape, or form there, especially, you know, Mikkel, being able to aid their forces and figure out the Nihil more than, they, than what they've been able to do. We've had some moments... Of foreshadowing in this episode and we get some more here where you know or at least it, that's what it felt like very strongly uh when uh skier the trendocean jedi is walking up with jorah you know he's telling her like you're supposed to be on the starlight beacon not here you know you gotta be helping out with supply requisitions or whatever and she shrugs it off you know saying uh, you know like it's uh you can just you can die just as easily in or out of battle and you know he kind of questions that but they both agree not to die don't say uh, which, this <laughs> which like have they not like watched any you know kind of thriller movies or just dramas or what like do they know not to say these things have they not been reading this book like we have listening to your podcast come on <laughs> apparently not i gotta get the jedi listeners in here where are you at it's like you know? running upstairs in a horror film exactly it's like oh going to check out the noise that i hear in the basement sure why yeah. not you know <laughs> uh just it was just it seemed very kind of overhanded heavy-handed by charles here a little bit too obvious i thought but either way you know they fly out in this formation there is this note 
here when Jorah activates her vector and weapon system with her white kyber crystal, which she thinks that she had retrieved uh, as a red one from a Sith light spear, and she healed it, and it became a, a white crystal instead, which I didn't, like, I don't know if that's the standard of how white crystals form, but that was a little, that was a pretty neat little bit of lore there where, you know, that's how it became a white crystal. That was really cool to read. I know I I had heard about this happening perhaps in, like, a, a comic or something like that, uh, the sort of healing of crystals before in canon so when i read it the first time it wasn't completely unfamiliar the idea i hadn't read the material that it sort of mentioned it earlier but i i really like it really like the idea it was a cool little piece of info and we're back on the new elite and kasav notices that the iriadu ships are within range they're within firing range, but they're not firing yet, probably to uh, to terrify their prey. Just quote, the ships were all long, thin, blade-like craft. They looked like swords, edge-on, and they were headed straight for him. And I just, I got this, cl- like, this image, this cloud of swords just ready to just dish out death. It was just such a chilling and just brilliantly little written line there. I, I love the vibe. I love the vibe. I love the bit where it says the... the- Ariadu and ships had advanced slow and steady and were now in visual range, which meant they were in weapons range as well, but they hadn't started firing. Kassav thought he knew why. The hunters wanted to terrify their prey before they killed it. A battle was one thing, but this was waiting. It was agonizing. This is so good. <laughs> they just the, the menace uh, of the Ariadu and fleet and bearing down on them is um it's so well written in this i love it i love it too like you said just that slow and steady advance you know kind of like it's very true that the waiting can be even more agonizing than actually being in a battle with them it's it's very very true there and you know he does end up saying like all right send a third of our ships to go deal with them like there's no way like you know you could just kiss goodbye to a third of your fleet there man i don't think it's (laughs) you don't know what you're getting into (laughs) And I mean, obviously, we haven't seen them in action in this book. You know, those of us, obviously, that have have read that Tarkin novel have an idea of uh, their military prowess, but we're given a pretty good description of their nature and their culture. And like you say, they're just building that suspense until the moment when they actually will be unleashed. Anticipation works both ways, doesn't it, With, with things that you're excited about and things that you dread. The anticipation is often where I guess a lot of that emotion comes from when you're really hanging out to see something and you eventually get to see it. It's great when you get to see it, but that whole time thinking about about getting to see it is, is part of the fun, whereas something you dread like this, the longer they draw it out and the, the slower they creep towards Kassav's, um, his Tempest, is just heightening that feeling of, of dread that they must be feeling on the bridge, well, particularly Kassav, who who has an idea of potentially what's in store. I I think it's very interesting that his crew don't seem to realize like the threat that they pose that, you know, that he's read up on. So they might be all gung ho, like, oh yeah, let's send a third of our ship. Let's go get him. And and really uh, they might just be flying straight to their deaths. But uh, he's got no intention of telling them either. uh, No, I mean, it's, he's just being laid bare here. uh, And I just, I, you know, just as I can't see a a way out for Loden, I yeah, I don't see it ending well for Kasav here, especially I that... <laughs> I don't see Kasav sneaking out of this one somehow. I suppose sneaking out 
to be honest, is probably the only way I could see him getting out of this. He's backed into a corner, uh, a, a corner that he's been deliberately placed in by, by Mark Rowe, who obviously thinks he's a piece of crap, is mutilated him, is undermined him to his crew. There's nothing going for Kasav at this point. And could he sneak away somehow, escape like a rat off a sinking ship and come back to haunt them in some way? Potentially. But most of the foreshadowing that we've we've read about today has suggested that it's probably going to be a three-day-old corpse in about three days' time. Yep, exactly. To see maybe the fruition to that poetry there. Uh, we can definitely see Kasav meeting his end here. I, I don't see the Iriaduans kind of failing the hunt here, so definitely interested to see what that'll mean for him. Uh, eventually, though, Markion does contact them because he's been, you know, they've been trying to hail him for a while, but there's been no response from him, probably intentionally, I think, you know, kind of letting the situation play out, letting the Tempest seeing that slowly they're losing the fight and that Kasav's tactics, you know, although it gives them a slight advantage for a time, they're getting figured out. But I thought it was really cheeky where Markion has the nerve to start the call with, quote, hey, Kasav, you ran into some trouble out there, which... <laughs> He 100% knew exactly <laughs> what he was sending him into, and he still leads him off with that. That was just so cheeky. I can so only imagine cheeky. the tone it's delivered in. Hey, Kasav, heard you ran into some troubles. A bit like, hey, huh, buddy old pal. You're right. <laughs> That's so, so cheeky from Markion. You know, he, he does give them, he ends up broadcasting to the entire Tempest. He gives them this really rousing speech. You know, he's saying that the Republic are trying to take away their freedom, their credits, you know, their way of life. They want them dead just for existing. And, and you know, we know that's not it. But he knows exactly what to say, what they need to hear in this moment, while simultaneously stripping more of Kasav's power from his own Tempest even more. It's just brilliantly worked here by Markion, and it ends up getting the job done too. It's Cult Leader 101, and he performs it brilliantly. Absolutely. He knows exactly what to say in these moments. And, um, you know, uh, Kasav kind of feels it too, where he is noticing that everyone around him, his lieutenants as well, they stop. You know, they're totally transfixed by Markion in this moment, and he gets a very bad feeling. And, and honestly, yeah, like, uh, I think at this moment, I think he can see the writing on the wall. And I think maybe we as the reader are are meant to as well. It, it just, it feels that way for Kasav, that this is maybe the last straw here, where he maybe realizes that he personally has lost. Yeah. No, that's a good point. In this rousing speech, he's setting up this situation whereby the Nile have no choice but to fight to the end because there's no place for them in the world of the the Republic. It's that or be killed. And perhaps Kasav in some way is feeling like he's not really part of what Mark Yonro is talking about. He hasn't got any part in the Nile leadership anymore. He knows Martin Rose stitched him up and, and sent him to what appears to be his ultimate doom. So, I don't know, does that spur him on to do something drastic? I don't know. It'd be interesting. That would be interesting. I really, I hadn't thought of that possibility where if if he will do something extreme, kind of out of maybe self-preservation or kind of just one last dig at Markion or something like that, I, I 
to have to wonder. That's a really, I hadn't thought about the, the reverse side of what Kasav might do here, because we're seeing exactly what Markion is doing. Yeah, he is firmly in control now. There's no two ways about it. You, you see that from the, the sort of the reactions of, of the crew. They, they were already, you know, just waiting for his orders on what to do with Kasav. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic developing on board. I wonder if we'll see that uh, play out in the in live chapters. Yeah, uh, it, it'll be definitely be something to, to keep tabs on here. But, uh, you know, he does tell them, Markion tells them that he's given them battle paths, which reminded me of battle pass. Is he going to charge them nine ninety nine a month? <laughs> uh, they're just waiting for the DLC to update. <laughs> I don't know how the connection out there, like if, if they also have to install and then copy the files, do they have PS4s? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> oh, um. please. No. No. <laughs> Pain. <laughs> I like, you know, three quarters of them, they've they've downloaded the, the patch. They're ready to go. And uh, and there's just a couple of poor ones that are, they've got Aussie internet or something. Uh, they're still sitting there <laughs> looking at their, looking at their watches. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be ready in a minute, guys. Any, any moment now, gonna, are they going to wait? Oh, like everyone else is doing something cool. I'm still, I'm still at 75%. Oh. <laughs> he says that with these battle paths, they cannot lose. And we find out what that means in kind of the next scene. We go to Skier's POV, where he notices that, you know, because they're out there flying in formation, ready to engage. They haven't yet engaged, but they're about to. He noticed that all of a sudden, the Nihil ships, quote, moved, shifted. All of them at once were in one place, and then they were in another, basically disappearing and reappearing in, in different positions without any real pattern to it. And all of a sudden, a large Nihil ship appears right in the middle of the Jedi's formation, and Skier senses his sense of many of those Jedi around him vanishes. And, and there's this piece of shrapnel that cuts through his roof. It, it cuts off his right arm. You know, he knows that it will grow back. He, he's a Trandoshan, so apparently that's a thing, but still uh, rough. But um, the most pain comes from his sense of Joramali disappearing as well. So we see, just as the foreshadowing in chapter 36 came to fruition, here it does as well, where it seems that in this chaos of the Nihil ship appearing in the middle of their formation, killing a lot of them, Joramali died as well. And, and this turns the tide with what has happened now with these battle paths, and it seems like this could be a very real problem for the Jedi as well. I did not see this coming at all just holy shit i know <laughs> well we saw it coming to a degree with the bit of foreshadowing that, that we just read before and i think it was only a couple of lines after the fate of tiami being mentioned as well like it's literally a few moments later and then they go into this same sort of spiel that we have with her but um i love how it sort of starts off talking about the drift and i think um i think it's scare that said something about um the only thing more beautiful than than witnessing the drift was was being part of it like it sort of sucks you into this picture of of what it's like coordinating with all these vectors together they're all linked into this uh this sort of um connection that the avar is helping to create or to boost and then bam something huge like that happens and not just uh 
you know, that feeling of the Jedi that they're melded with sort of blinking out, but also that your physical damage that's done to scare losing an arm <laughs> from a big piece of metal coming through the cockpit. It all just happens in this moment and it's graphic and it's powerful and yeah, it's really well written, but it's also horrifying absolutely like uh you know for all the tricks that markion could have conjured i could not see the effect of or, or really the the design and effect of these battle paths i, I could not anticipate that at all it's and i wonder the Republic forces could yeah uh, yeah i was about to say i wonder if the jedi will be able to anticipate i mean i i i can Imagine, you know, obviously there's going to be like a quite a, a shock here for all of them to, to deal with. But I can imagine Avar, you know, she was able to really what they were able to do at Hetzal was incredible, you know, trying to move the uh, the canister of Tabana uh, away from the sun. We've seen them do incredible things when they are united and although there's this, you know, kind of this brief moment of, you know, division where their linked formation is now destroyed to the expense of a lot of them, I do think, though, that Avar will be able to conjure something with her with her meditation, maybe that they will be able to, in some way, anticipate where the Nihil will appear. But at the same time, I can also see this kind of being the total turn of the tide where they have to pull back and evaluate or reevaluate the Nihil and realize that these are, you know, Avar called them small time earlier. They might have to reevaluate and realize that, yeah, uh, these aren't small time. But at the same time, like, we have the Iriaduan fleet, so I think there's still a lot of cards yet to be played with Avar's full potential, with the Iriaduan fleet being able to maybe turn the tide in, in their favor to some extent. So we're being left with a lot of questions, which uh, it's definitely... A large setup here for just for this to get even wilder like we've seen with the with the paths that they're able to make these sort of micro jumps that you know, no one really saw, thought was was actually possible and here we're seeing just this chaotic sort of random weave of uh, of craft jumping all over the place like it must be very very hard to to comprehend let alone to to combat but at the same time, sort of by nature of the sort of random chaos, they must be losing their own craft in, in massive numbers too. So it doesn't seem like something that's sustainable to a point where they could potentially, you know, wipe out the Iriadwans and the Republic. So I, I, like you, I, I sort of feel that there is, it's still a card to play for those two factions, but it must be just incredibly disorienting in the middle of a battle for something that you couldn't have even imagined that alone seen before erupt like that. Yeah, there's just no way to prepare for it. And, you know, I do have to wonder how they will regroup. I do think they will regroup, the Jedi, the Republic. But you're right, that is a good point, how it might not be a very sustainable strategy for the Nihil in kind of the long term of the battle, but they've succeeded in the initial shock, which is maybe part of the intent, but we'll definitely see how that will play out in the next chapters. But that does leave us to the end of this chapter to the end of this episode. Doug, uh, you know, on for a second episode this season. How are you feeling kicking off part three after after these chapters? How are you, uh, how are you feeling right now? Yeah, well, it, I feel like we're starting to 
see Marky and Ro emerge as the villain in this story. We, we've sort of seen him now take control of of the Nile in a way that at the start of the book was made pretty clear, you know, wasn't his business. He, he didn't directly, you know, he couldn't directly order the three tempests about and there was a, you know, a structure to their hierarchy, I guess, that, you know, meant he had some power, but he's sort of taken a, a step forward in that. We've seen a couple of the Tempest Firmers fail uh, to different degrees. And, yeah, you just get the feeling that he's he's stepping forward as the main villain now. And obviously what he's being able to bring, the, the chaos he's able to unleash, is something that, that the Republic and, and the Jedi aren't quite ready for. We're in for a thrilling conclusion and, and going forward in, in, uh, in the story too. Yeah, definitely. You know, the Republic and the Jedi might not be ready. I'm not ready uh, to see what this looks like for, like you say, Markeon, to really take center stage uh, on the, the villain side of things right now, you know, really asserting his control now over an entire Tempest and what that might look like for the Nihil as a whole. There's a lot to wonder about in the future and the conclusion of this book. But Doug, thank you so much for coming on again to talk about these chapters, you know, to kick off the final act of this book. It really hasn't disappointed, you know, a few chapters in. Thanks so much for doing this and for talking some more Light of the Jedi. As always, it's a pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed this story and, and revisiting it either to prepare for these episodes or uh, or indeed just following along the podcast has been uh, has been really enjoyable. So uh, thanks so much for having me. Before we close out today, I'll give our next Searcher Readings discussion question. As we enter the final acts of the book, the Republic and the Nihil are coming to some fateful confrontations. What surprised or shocked you the most in these chapters as the stakes and costs only soar higher and higher. I'll post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, comment and send your responses on any of those platforms, or you can send them via email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com with the subject line, search your readings. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay connected to the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created, hosted, and produced by Andrew Geha, and this episode was also edited by Andrew Geha. We will be back in two weeks with episode 55, so until then, sit back and enjoy. I'm still waiting for my battle path to download. Yeah, this Outer Rim Wi-Fi, man, let me tell you. <laughs>